0: The 1996 climbing season on Everest was, up to that point, one of the deadliest seasons ever for climbers on that mountain. And the story of their ordeal as told in an incredible book by John Krakauer called Into Thin Air, also made into a movie that focuses mostly on a group of American climbers and, and a couple of beautiful deer people that were lost high on the mountain that year. But there's another story. There's a side story in that saga that has just haunted me since I read it. There were three climbers from India that were actually making their way up another route, and they were stranded by the same storm high on the mountain. And unable to work their way down, they spent the night on the face of the mountain without shelter in a howling blizzard. The following morning, two Japanese climbers making their final bid for the summit passed these guys who were dying. They offered no food, no water, no oxygen, no assistance. They they literally rested beyond them by just 100 feet and went on to gain the summit And then coming back down, they simply stepped around the three dying climbers and headed down the mountain. And there is something about human nature in that story that haunts me. Friends, welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast, John Eldridge in the studio with Blaine Eldridge, picking up in part three of a series on why are you so ambivalent about Jesus's return? Why is that a subject that causes very mixed reactions in people when we bring that up? Very mixed reactions even within the same person. React to that story, Blaine. Good. I'm glad we didn't
1: jump past the Japanese climbers because what I want to point out in that story is that that's not a story about the narcissism of climbers. It actually isn't. That is a warning about inclinations in humanity that I have and that our listeners have. And to go, that indignation that rises in you Pay attention because that's a way out of some of the dark parts of your own nature because you're doing the same thing right now. And if we could address your life and begin to unpack your aspirations and your
0: motives and your allegiances, we would find a very mixed story. It is a mixed story. I think it's James that says, be careful that you don't kill each other over your desires right that there is something in humanity. So let's let's describe it like this. There's something in humanity that says don't you dare mess with my program. Don't you dare mess with my program. And you see it in small ways in traffic, right? I'm embarrassed by you know I get stuck behind the guy going 50 on the freeway and I don't bless him. I yes. I, I don't wish I don't wish good things on his day. And, you know, it gets worse and worse, messing with your children's education, blocking wedding plans, getting in the way of things that are precious to your career or your health, right? Oh, man, this is really a good
1: topic. It makes me think of last summer when I was doing some landscaping at my house, and it wasn't going well. And sort of for the 10th or 11th time, I circled back to my wife to, would you pray with me on this? And she began, you know, by praying into the blessing of Jesus over your landscaping, love into this process. But then, because we were praying, I started to be outed as M went. As we're praying, I'm kind of hearing you know, and noticing, why are you doing this by yourself? Did you ask God about the timing of this project? It seems like really difficult timing. And I went from, would you please help me with this frustration to don't mess with me right now. I have a plan about how my life is going to work and I don't want to actually surrender or run that entire plan by Jesus.
0: Absolutely. In one of his end-of-the-age discourses, not the famous one in Matthew 24 this one is in Luke 17 Luke is repeating some of the same themes but he has them you know organized differently in his gospel but there's a new there's a new phrase in here he uses the same thing with Noah as Matthew does just as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the son of man people are going to be eating drinking marrying giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. And then he adds this new piece about Lot. He says it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And then the warning is this remember Lot's wife. He who tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Remember Lot's wife. That is one of the most unnerving things that is said in the
1: four Gospels. It's a good time for Jesus to say that because by that time, most Bible readers have forgotten that disturbing (laughs) story about Lot and his wife and
0: salt. Right? All right. So let's go back to that story for a minute. Because, friends, what we need to deal with here in episode three, we're just going to put our cards on the table, is our divided allegiances. This is the issue. The climbers on Everest had divided allegiances. There's the common heart of humanity to help the person in need. My goodness, someone's dying in front of you. But they had another allegiance that they were fiercely committed to and had absolutely no intention of anyone messing with that. So, back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you haven't read that for a while, gang, it's found in Genesis chapter 19, and it is a pretty gnarly story, not because of the fire and brimstone. Two angels of God show up in the city of Sodom to see if There are even 10 good people in the town that are righteous and and they won't destroy the city because Abraham has begged God for mercy prior to the event. And they're like, okay, if we can find 10. Anyway, they find Lot. He welcomes them into his house. The men of the city show up to gang rape these two newcomers, angels, into the town of Sodom. And and lots like please 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 don't do this you don't know what you're doing please don't do this and you know the they rescue Lot from the mad crowd that's going to tear him apart and, and the angels say do you have anybody in this town that any relatives any loved ones cuz get him out of here quick we're going to blow this place up and so Lot goes to his in-laws and he's like look god's going to destroy this town you got to get out and they laugh at him a dis Disturbing parallel to people's mockery when you bring up the end of the age and the return of Jesus. It's like, oh, come on, come on, really? Give me a break. So he can't rescue them. Anyway, the angels finally just grab Lot and his family and they're like, get out of Dodge now. Force them out of the city. Literally, for my contact, run. Yes. Run. Yeah, run. And they speed. say run. They say run to the mountains, and Lot's like, I can't, I'm can't. i old. I can't make it there. I, I can't go that far. How about just that city over there? Can I just run to that village? It's a, it's a tiny little town down the plain. They're like, okay, we won't destroy that town yet. Yeah, you can go there and take refuge. And so they're heading off. Fire and brimstone's about to come down and consume this incredibly evil place. And Lot's wife looks back. Now, they were warned not to look back. Don't look back. And I think there was actually a kindness in that warning. Like, you don't want to see this. This is going to be traumatizing. Don't savor the wrath of God. Just run. She looks back, and she turns into a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? What do you think that's about? It's so good.
1: I mean, it's a disturbing story. It's good because the topic is important. and. To address Lot's wife, I want to go back to the concept of allegiance, of what does it mean to have divided allegiance, and then why is Lot's wife a great example? There's actually a really interesting book on this topic called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Rethinking Faith Works in the Gospel of Jesus the King, and (laughs) (laughs) let me just have that title again. Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Rethinking Faith, Works, and the Gospel of Jesus the King. And Go on. Now, this is not a full endorsement of the project because I don't even actually have the theological chops to fully understand what he's doing. But something he points out is that the word pistis, which is one of the New Testament words for faith, is used by contemporary rulers to mean allegiance, meaning you have trusted me as the best way to get the life you want, right? This is why you give your allegiance to a king. Is you go, your military might is the best plan for my protection. Your justice is the best plan for the preservation of my estate. Your character is the best plan for the happiness of my children. I'm in you are my number one plan for living. And then so that when Jesus rolls into your life and makes the offer, there is a giving of allegiance of, yep, I have tried other strategies to get the life that I want. I see them for what they are. I'm refusing them. You are now my number one plan for living. And that means I'm going to believe what you say, accept the offers that you make. Well, Lot's wife is a great example of this because you go, part of her plan for living, part of the plan in this story, and it's not just Lot's wife, it's his whole family because the Sodom story, we could spend a podcast series on. Yes. There had already been the war of the chieftains. He'd already been taken into captivity. He went back to Sodom after receiving maybe the best warning anyone could get, the town is named violence, and he goes to live there? What is it in that town that seemed like the best plan for living, even while there were other offers made? Don't make me run to the mountains. That's where Abraham is, this guy who has a covenant with this God.
0: Who rescued him, by the way. Who rescued you
1: the first time. In the chieftain wars, Yeah. Why? Don't you want to go there? What is it in God's strategy for giving you the life that you want that you are afraid of or that you can't say yes to? You can't surrender to. What are you holding on to? What are you grasping? So she's like, yeah, it's a violent town, but I think we can make life work here. I think that access to a thriving marketplace and a network of other towns is the best way for me to get the security, love, stability, flourishing that I need. Yes. And therefore, she can't help it. And again, in these stories— She has a divided allegiance. She has a divided allegiance. It's just to go, in every one of the Bible's stories— the antagonist in the story is the representation of your flesh. So it's like <laughs> she's not some worse kind of person. Is go, okay, so any one of us could do that. We're being given an awesome warning about our nature and to go, even when it's starting to explode, something in us wants to hold
0: on. Yes. Yeah. Which is, It's crazy-making, but it's in all of us. We have these divided allegiances, and Jesus is warning about that here in the discussion about his return and about the end of the age. And, you know, he reiterates the surprise motif. Hey, it's going to be like Noah, surprise. It's going to be like Lot, surprise. Guess what? It's today. Don't look back. Like, do not let your heart be divided about my coming, about what the unfolding of the story, moving into the next chapter, all the joys that are ahead. And part of me wants to go, really, people? Really? Like, you want to hang on to your little crust of bread in this life when total restoration is just around the corner? But this is deep in human nature and We've had a number of conversations on on the podcast over the past couple of years where I've used the phrase, the winnowing of the saints, because I began to observe a pattern among the people of God that really, really good people, not people paying for their foolish choices, not totally rebellious people paying for giving God the finger, but honest, loving friends of Jesus, wanting desperately to walk with him, going through really, really hard stuff. And I began, I saw it in my own life. I saw it in the life of my friends. saw it in yours, Blaine. I called it the winnowing of the saints. There is something God is after in this hour right now. And he is after our divided allegiances.
1: Oh my gosh, is he. And if it sounds intense, one thing I want to name is you don't have to consider evil very long to see that judgment is needed. And when I say judgment, you could put in the phrase, someone has to do something about this, where spend a little time considering human trafficking, and you will feel the fury of God and go, someone has to do something. We got to stop this. And you go, oh, yeah. And let me just tell you, Jesus is coming to actively destroy the things that are destroying the world. But evil isn't something that's just out there. We, it's actually like, in us to a surprising degree where we are still a mixed bag. And in the winnowing, Jesus is actually doing gently now, gently but insistently with a level of urgency, what he's going to do actively in the future and go, listen, your heart is hanging on to this world more than you think. And the consequences of that are not good. Yes. The consequences of that aren't joy, peace, happiness, resurrection. In fact, they're often the opposite. Mm. And sort of go, man, do I really want Jesus to come winnow me? That sounds intense. Go, <laughs> yes, you do. Because you know what Jesus is motivated by, giving you everything instead of nothing. Yes. Saving you from internal and external evil, both spiritual and personal, and be like, this is ultimately very good news to have God expose our, and man, I could speak to mine out of the season, my alternative plans for living that don't solely rest on Jesus as the trustworthy king who is going to give me, lead me into yes. the life that I want to live.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I call it rowing backwards. I love to fly fish. So do you. We love to float rivers. It's one of the funnest way to fly fish. It's just gorgeous. You get on a beautiful river in the Rocky Mountain West and you've got the beauty of the canyon and the mountains around you and the deer and the wildlife coming down to drink, the bear that we jumped early in the morning in the willows, and then you're on the river, and it's quiet, and it's, oh, it's so healing. It's just healing to do it, and then there's the fishing and the joy of that and the excitement and hours and hours of it, and it's one of my places you know, for me, it can be a place of very divided allegiance. It can move from sweet gift of God to my broken cistern very easily. And in the past couple of years, I've been aware of God asking me to loosen my grip on this world. John, just loosen your grip on this world. No fear. There is no loss that is coming. Set your sights on where I am. Jesus is very much trying to get his people focused on his return right now. And we are very reluctantly doing it. And it feels like I'm trying to row backwards. It feels like I'm not going with the current of the river. I'm trying to fight it. No, no, one more hour, Lord. Three more fish. Come on, just three, you know. And it's like, wow, really? Really? In Hebrews chapter 11 there's something really important said about the life of Moses. It's the Hall of Fame of Faith, and it's talking about, you know, Abraham and and Noah and the greats. And it says this about Moses. First, it says, by faith, Moses's parents hid him for three months after he was born, you know, because Pharaoh was executing all of the children. It was, you know, national infanticide. And Because they saw he was no ordinary child, they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So Moses got this credible thing going, right? Sweet gig. He got a sweet deal, right? It's it's much better to be a prince than to be a king, right? The princes have all the fun, as, as Lewis says in one of the Narnia stories. So he has wealth. He has power. He has luxury. He has any. He can do anything he wants. And he says, nope. I'm not going to be a man of divided allegiance. I surrender all of that in order to go with God. And right now, going with God looks like going out into the desert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Not a good place to go. Right? Yeah.
0: Man, it... Again
1: podcast to, "Oh, the disturbing stories today uh, could be a working title, but to go, Moses chose to be mistreated, to participate in the salvation of the world, ultimately, yes. instead of enjoying the pleasures of Egypt, and I do want to name again the kindness thing here of... There was a season where, man, before we had two kids, one kid, it seems like I had twice as much free time as as with two kids. But Monday nights would be my night to go get some time with God. And over time, a really interesting thing started to happen where it was, okay, what are the places that I find you, God? What are the places that I find joy? But frustration over time with feeling like I had this night and then God wasn't feeling it kind of led to, well, if you are hard to get to, then my next best plan to replenish, refresh myself for the week is whatever. And pretty normal things like mountain biking or grabbing a beer with a buddy or which are all good and God can fill them. The problem was that the motive was actually born out of I'm not sure that you will come through for me, yep. and that's and there's sort of real pain there that God had to address and to go hey and hi friends listening in your story there's a reason why the allegiance ended up divided and there are probably multiple reasons but to go. Where did it feel like you made Jesus your best plan for living and it didn't work? Mm. Where did you hope that he would refresh you and it seems like he didn't? And then there's a reactive response of, well, fine. Well, I'm going to do the next best thing I can. God is after that to address that and to get to the place where just the motive is, all right, Jesus, I want everything through you. And some of your daily activities might look the same, but just to go, sometimes Jesus's way seems hard or sometimes it seems like he didn't come through in key moments so that the best thing that we have is the pleasures of Egypt Uh, well, fine, if you and I can't commune intimately in the wilderness, I'm just going to stop trying and really try to Mm. milk my Mm. community for all that it's worth, which you may not even be aware that you're doing until something threatens your rich community of deep friendships and you freak out because it wasn't held loosely. Loosely is with the confidence that God is going to give it to you. It was held tightly as in, this is all I have. Do not take this away from me.
0: Yeah, bingo. Yeah. So— One of my favorites is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. (laughs) Everybody's favorite. (laughs) What a fantastic read
1: for people born in the 1800s.
0: (laughs) It is an odd read, but it's a really good one because his insights into the Christian life are right on and born out of his own suffering, written while he was in prison for persecution for his faith. But the famous, famous story is Vanity Fair, yes. right? Yes. And they're drawing close. They're getting close to the celestial city. You know, they're on this, this pilgrimage. They're actually running for their lives. It's a lot story. They literally flee the coming wrath and run for the, the city of God. And then they hit Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is so enchanting and it's so filled with All the particular little wonderful things that make for a happy life that it has seduced many pilgrims to give up their journey and to just go ahead and camp there. They're no longer pilgrims. They're squatters, right? They're now campers. Years later, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a follow-up called the Celestial Railroad, and he picks up. This time it's a train trip, but it also stops in Vanity Fair. And here's the passage. Many passengers stop to take their pleasure or make their profit in Vanity Fair instead of going onward to the celestial city. Indeed, such are the charms of the place that people often affirm it to be the true and only heaven, stoutly contending that there is no other that those who seek further are mere dreamers, and that if the fabled brightness of the celestial city lay but a bare mile beyond the gates of Vanity Fair, they would not be fools enough to go thither. Ouch. Oh, he just, he writes so brilliantly. That was Hawthorne riffing on Bunyan. He writes so brilliantly. It's so true that in the quickest way to this is, so how is fasting going for you, people? Like, the simple act of just giving stuff up for the sake of God and for the sake of teaching your soul to give stuff up, right? Like, that value made this year to cut back on sugar or alcohol or, you know, maybe to give up on a friendship that was actually pulling you down— all like, right, how how'd that
1: go? Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, another one <laughs> is, hey, what happens when you see a way to get a dream that God has put on ice for a while? And I see this one in myself, and another has happened as often, where you're a writer and you have Care- to pick careful, an example around, Yeah, you know what? Let me, <laughs> you are a juggler and you want to work at a circus and go, okay, that's safer. That's okay. <laughs> You're a writer. God has, you know, sort of given you a track of, you know, we're going to write this way, but you, that life of you writing in the cottage, don't try to get that yet. And then somewhere along the way, some offer is made that seems like it's that life. Or I've seen this happen with people a million times with their, in quotes, dream job, where we'll be walking out their story. They want to work a certain job. They're not in it. It's clear that actually God does not have that job for them right away. And then some form of that is often made, some form of offer of, hey, uh, you know, blank company. Just came back to me. It seems like this might be coming together and going, wait a second. I thought that we talked about this. Oh, yes. Why are you saying yes? Yeah. Why are we having this conversation? Or people who are like, I'm in a season where I'm not dating. Okay, hang on, hang on. Let's go back to just the
0: job thing. And when you suggest actually, you know, David, Jenny, Jan, Mike, I don't think I. this doesn't look good to me. I don't think this is from God. What is their reaction? Oh, well, I can do. What my reaction is not
1: happy. It is this: uh, you have to think of Bilbo responding to Gandalf when he's asked to get up the ring. Well, what business is isn't of yours? What I do with my own things. And there is a oh, whoa, yeah, ring scene is a great example.
0: I think dating is another great example. All right, let me try one more tender, tender example. The number of young women that I have counseled over the years, either just because I was in the same church with them or professionally as a therapist, who desperately, desperately wanted to be married, to have a family, to have a shared life with someone, and it wasn't happening. And then a guy comes along who is iffy not the man that would be best, but okay. And the willingness to overlook glaring issues, just just turn a complete blind eye, ignore the counsel of family and friends of, whoa, 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 hang on. I'm not sure about this guy. The fierce commitment to move forward and get married. And then... We've gotten the phone calls. Sometimes it's a month later. Sometimes it's 10 years later, and the phone call comes and it was, You were right. What did I do? My life is miserable. But that fierceness in the moment of, Do not take this from me. This is my one chance. Oh, MG. I want to go to a
1: simple one and then push just a little further into the stakes, reframe the stakes again. There's, there's a regular occurrence with me where there will be something that seems simple that I would love, and many star people know that trucks are one such thing for me, but it's not a truck right now. I've actually been hounding the internet for bumper plates, for weightlifting, but it's so funny where several weeks ago, Em and I were just discerning on a number of things, trying to get what should we put our energies toward. And I was like, hey, this weight thing, some guys and I want to lift together gyms because the pandemic are difficult. And we heard Jesus go, wait, I'm going to give it to you. And I go, okay, totally. So why am I on the internet this morning looking <laughs> for bumper plates? Yes. Oh... Ultimately, what's being exposed in me is a kind of a lingering reticence, a lingering unbelief of, I don't know that you will give it to me. Yes. And that becomes clear when I can't just listen when you go, I'll give it to you, and I think yeah. I don't shift into, oh great, well then I will spend my time thinking about other things. Yeah. Perfect. And wait. Yeah, but that doesn't happen. And so to go, whoa, okay, where where do I still not trust you? Where do I still want or think that I have to make this happen myself? Which is, again, where it goes from rebellion to pain or rebellion to misinterpreted stories and – where do I not totally trust you and think I still have to make it happen? Yes. That may be an ongoing process because you hang a lot of hopes on a friend's wedding being a great experience and it's not and you feel missed and then it doesn't get addressed and so down the line you find the ambivalence back and go, oh, it. among other things, You will have to circle back on a regular basis to your disappointments to have God address what seemed like evidence or just a hard experience of, yeah, but explain this to me. Because I I did try, and it seems like you really didn't come through or Mm. didn't care or weren't Mm. present. And until that's interpreted, that will be Mm. a real difficulty in
0: signing off Mm. on— Trusting Jesus is your number one plan. Yes. Let's go back to the pandemic for a minute. Back in the spring, the heavy-duty quarantines, the restrictions, and people lost a lot of things. Uh, You know, kids lost the rest of their school year, and seniors didn't get, you know, a wonderful public graduation, either from high school or college, all kinds of trips, Weddings were postponed. Weddings were held, but with only six people because you couldn't have family. I mean, all kinds of loss. And friends, what did you do with that? Did that help your heart shift more towards the return of Jesus and all that comes with it? Or did Did you just plan on, I tell you what, man, as soon as those airlines open back up, I am, I'm getting that trip. And I was seeing it in myself. I was seeing, and, you know, we lost trips, we lost family things. And and then an opportunity came up for us to at least go camping together. And I'm like, nobody's going to take this from me. I'm just, ooh, John, like this fierce commitment to find life now. I will find life. Now, it's the story of the Exodus, right? Things get a little hard and they want to go back to Egypt. And you're like, do you remember Egypt? Are you kidding me? You were in slavery there. But they're like, yeah, but our pots were full. We, you know. Yeah, what's the vegetable? Cucumbers. Yeah. Leeks and onions, right? We had them. And this is human nature. And it's something that God is deeply working in. And now to a very very difficult subject, but when we talk about divided allegiances, we can't leave this one unaddressed because when people, if you are not regularly fantasizing about the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things, then you are still trying to make Vanity Fair work for you. It's a, That's just the bottom line. If, if, if when you experience a loss, your heart is not buoyed by, that's coming back. I get that back. That's coming. Christ will restore that to me at the restoration rather than I'm going to figure out how to get that trip back. I'm going to figure out how to, you know, the grasping. It's It's just a really good test. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus many times in the gospel says, if you love someone more than me, you are not worthy of me and it's a really really tough test particularly I want to point out back in that day and age where i mean in the jewish culture at that time as has played out for centuries family was everything everything and you honored your father and mother and their every request so the famous story when jesus's mother and his brothers show up outside this house that he's teaching in and They've come to collect him, and it says, hey, your your mom and your brothers are outside in the street waiting to talk to you, and Jesus doesn't go there. And he he doesn't drop everything and run out and talk to his dear mom. He says, "Who who are my mother and my brother and my sisters, those who do the will of God? You know, he's reorienting allegiances. He is reorienting allegiances, and this touches on many people's difficulty looking forward to the coming kingdom
1: i absolutely have mixed feelings about jesus's return i have 3 children two are walking with god but one is not i'm an evangelist at heart so the thought of one child defiant against god at the return of christ leaves me almost in a panic and with her out of the fold I think of others also, all over the globe, entire people groups who are still living in darkness. I'm not glibly shouting, Come, Lord Jesus, come. I weep. I'm weeping now.
0: This is a tough one. And I actually have my sandals off in the studio right now. Um, I take my shoes off because. This fear is legitimate, and this fear is heartbreaking, and this fear has a lot of people not exactly looking forward to the return of Jesus. Wait, 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 not yet. Some other moment, some other generation than mine. Like, not yet, not yet, not yet. And I just want to say a few things to this, friends. You have to rest everything in the goodness of God. You absolutely have to rest your heart's concern for your loved ones. How can I enjoy heaven or the new earth or the restoration of all things when my loved ones may not be there with me? And therefore, that causes a lot of people to pull out of the hope of it, a hope that we all desperately need and should be sustaining us right now. You've got to start with the goodness of God. You absolutely have to start with that. And you have to start with the assurance of the scriptures that God does everything he possibly can to get your loved ones, to get Christ to them. And the fact of the matter is, unless you are at their deathbed and they are cursing Christ, as they step into eternity, you don't know. You don't know what their final encounters with Christ are. You don't know the shift of heart that actually took place when they were nine years old and is still down in there as a very, very tiny, very dim spark of allegiance to Jesus, a love for God, an openness to him. You don't know that that's enough, that God has them. And so one of the teachings of, of Scripture is you're going to be surprised by the people that are in heaven. Like, Right. When did we clothe you? When did
1: we give you something to drink? Yes. That whole thing.
0: Yeah, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man looks up and goes, wait, what? Lazarus? Is it Abraham's bosom? He was the homeless guy. I, you're kidding me. My gardener? My alcoholic uncle? But what? what that boyfriend that broke up with me in college? That, wait, who is there? I can't believe this. Just the assurance of it is what I'm saying. You know, the 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 assurance of you don't know, you just don't know.
1: That's really good. And even the tone here is instructive. Of God actually feels tender about this place, yes. and kind towards of you, of course, and to go. That you don't know, that can go off a number of directions, but one that is really helpful to point out is that, again, in Divided Allegiance, humanity wants assurance that's additional to the heart of God regarding its future. And so we want to go like, yeah, but okay, so I want to know, no, 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 that Everything will be okay and all my kids will be there and go, you're not actually given that. You're given what Jesus is like and how trustworthy he is. Yes, And so humanity has tried over and over again without success to set up a system of security beyond Jesus's trustworthiness and go, okay, oh, so you're saying that if my kids were pretty good, and they have been, then I can and be like, I'm saying that you can trust Jesus' love for your kids, which is greater than yours, and trust his heart here. Yes. You really can rely on him. He's the most trustworthy person in the universe. Yes. And then you were saying that the not to become a hostage, man. So this year I was. Uh, Stuck in my house for a while, you know, not saying why, but it was the pandemic, so I was reading through the books on the shelf, and I read The Great Divorce again, and there is a conversation on this topic in the book that is so, so, so helpful, and it's C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis talking through George MacDonald, who is the guide in the book, And they're watching a couple have a conversation, one of whom, the wife, is choosing allegiance to Jesus, and the other, the husband, who literally can't let go of another plan, which is being the center of the story, Mm -hmm. being the one who was wronged, not being the one who did harm, but -hmm. was invited in anyway, and... It's such a telling dialogue where McDonald asks Lewis in the story, what do you want? And Lewis is kind of baffled and says, I hardly know. Some people say on earth is that the final loss of one soul gives the lie to the joy of those who are saved. McDonald responds, you see, it doesn't. Louis, I feel in a way that it ought to. That sounds very merciful, but see what lurks behind it. Louis asks, What? And then here's the answer the demand of the loveless and the self imprisoned that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else should taste joy, that theirs should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. He goes on, Either the day must come when joy prevails and all makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever The makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness that they reject for themselves. I know it has a grand sound to say you'll accept no salvation, which leaves even one creature in the dark outside. But watch that sophistry, or you'll make a dog in a manger, the tyrant of the universe.
0: The idea being you cannot let hell hold heaven hostage. And Jesus is very clear on this about divided allegiances. Unless you love me more than you love father, mother, family, country, political party, you know, on and on and on and on it goes, backcountry skiing, fly fishing, dark chocolate, your comforts, you must not have divided allegiances the number of really good people friends of jesus who are not actively talking about thinking about excited about his return is a very clear indication that we have something in vanity fair that's got its hook in us with there's some fear there's some current plan. There, I don't know. There's an ambivalence. There is a dividedness within us. And this is the very thing that Jesus says in Luke 17, 32, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. We're going to need to conclude episode three here in the series. We'll be back next time uh, with more questions, concerns, objections. What else are causing people to hit a speed bump in their excitement about the imminent return of Jesus?